Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from our guest speaker. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. So appreciate our worship team who week after week that it takes work. It takes work. It doesn't just happen. You probably know that, but sometimes it just seems to flow. And you, That second song has always been one of my favorites. And sometimes, well, for the last many years, I've been privileged to be a part of Columbia International University. And so my world has been 18 to 23-year-olds. And it just keeps you young. I mean, you sit there in the dining room and Medicare and procedures and rheumatism and arthritis, it never comes up at the table. Never. And you just feed off that and you fool yourself into thinking you're younger than you are. Well, um, been in chapel and I've heard students sing that second song. You're, you've never, you know, never let me down. You never let me down. You're never going to let me down. And that's good. And I'm glad that they're starting to grasp that. But in my mind, I think, but you're 20. Sing it again when you're 67, and it will really mean something to you because you can look back at a longer life of walking with God and seeing God be with you. Today we want to talk about David, who, despite the fact that a lot of Scripture is about him, he's an ordinary man. He's just an ordinary man, but he's in the hands of an extraordinary God. Let's just think back this so far, this study, when Pastor Don texted me a while back and said, hey, can you be a part of this study? And I've got these four Sundays laid out. And of course, we could go for 14 Sundays and talk about David and the principles in his life. But a few weeks ago when he started, we started looking at David, just an ordinary guy. And he was. One of eight sons, and he's number eight. And he's out tending the sheep. And the last thing on Jesse's mind is Samuel wants to see him. But God looked at the heart. David was an ordinary guy, but he had a God kind of heart. And God used that. Then on the 12th, Pastor Don talked about David finding real courage as he faced his giant opponent, Goliath. And we saw how David found courage from the fact that God had worked in his life in the past. When David was out tending the sheep and a lion came against him or a bear, he had to deal with it. Maybe he had help probably from some other shepherds, but he had to deal with it. This was his family portfolio on the line, these sheep, these goats. But he did. And when Goliath, with his taunts, offended him, David was was offended because of the way Goliath was trash-talking about David's God. And David decided to go fight him because David decided, well, on the basis of what I've already seen God do in my life in the past, I think I can trust him for the present. And he did, and you know the rest of the story. And Lord willing, three weeks from... Yesterday, I'll be standing overlooking that valley where David fought Goliath. Israel is calling, and I must go. It's just what I do. Woe to me. Ha. So, last week, a little bit different of a turn last week, we saw how David was challenged that despite his zeal for God, despite his enthusiasm, 
that there was, there was something wrong about the way the people under David's charge were approaching their worship and they were bringing the ark up and then all of a sudden Uzzah dies because of his irreverence toward the ark and they should have known the law of Moses told them how to transport the ark they had their own idea and one man paid with his life before a holy God so David learned to keep things God's way and today I'm going to allude back to some of the things that Donna's talked about, but also tread some new ground. We're going to hit four different psalms that David wrote, and then also a little passage from 2 Samuel chapter 7, as we talk about David, an ordinary man in the hands of an extraordinary God. Now, let me get to the point. Here's the main point today that I want you to take home with you. The Bible is filled, filled with the names of ordinary people whom God used in an extraordinary way when they yielded their lives, surrendered their lives to his purpose. Today, it is often said to young people, you can be anything you want to be. Probably not. What I would rather tell young people or any people is you can be world class in whatever God calls you to do. You can be world-class in whatever God calls you to do because the consistent testimony of Scripture is that ordinary people in the hands of an extraordinary God, who knows? Here's David. 3,000 years later, we're still talking about him. Now, it's not about being the kind of people that if Jesus tarries, that 3,000 years from now, they can be talking about you or me. That's not the issue. The issue is about how can my short life matter. Can it really matter? The answer of scripture is, yeah, it can matter a lot if you're surrendered to God's purpose. Who knows where God's going to take it? That's what we're going to look at. And some of these Psalms we'll look at today, I suspect that David figured out some of these life principles while he was a shepherd before he became king. And at least two of them he figured out after he became king or he refined them after he became king. So we'll look at each one in turn and read some psalms and reflect on those psalms. Life principle number one, God is God and we're not. Yeah, God is God and we're not. It sounds so obvious, right? And yet, how many times, if we're not careful, do we kind of try to, you know, just at least sit next to him right there on the throne? You don't know. I imagine in my sanctified imagination, which is sometimes pretty good, that David, out there with the sheep, on a dark night in the wilderness of Judah, he looked up because there's no ground clutter of the city. It's just him and the animals and his associates, and it's really dark, which means the sky is filled with luminaries. And he looks up and he ponders like, my, 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 look at all that. And my God did all that, and yet <laughs> the God who did all that wants to have a relationship with me. And he writes this psalm. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, you who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. David's looking at it, I think, as he's writing this. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your enemies to do away with the enemy and the revengeful. 
God, you can even do a lot with the mouths of infants and nursing babies. And then I think he looks up again. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you think of him? And a son of man that you are concerned about him. Yet you've made him a little bit lower than God. Now, in one sense, we're way lower than God because we can't begin to recreate that starry night that David saw. We can't do a sunrise. We can't do a sunset, any of that. We can look at it, appreciate it, but we can't create it. But in another sense, a little lower than God makes sense in that God has entrusted us with a lot, right, as his creation. Genesis chapter 1 says we are made in God's image. And that probably means at least four things. One, that we have intellect, like God does. We're rational creatures. God is not a creature, but he has a rational ability. Uh, he, emotion, we can express emotion. Uh, we have volition, that is, we have a will. We can make choices. And to some extent, God has put us in charge of the creation to exercise dominion over it as his representative. So in that sense... We're way below him on the, on the talent chart, on the power chart. But in terms of the organizational chart and the way that it expresses itself in creation, we're the next ones down, yeah, over his creation. You made him a little lower than God, yet you crown him with glory and majesty. You have him rule over the works of your hands. You've put everything under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the animals of the field, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. One of the reasons we're still talking about David is because David came to a point where he realized God is God and I'm not. He's running from Saul. He's trying to run a kingdom. He's a shepherd. Wherever he was in life, he figured that out, I think, early. And that helped him to trust and it helped him to be stronger. Life principle number two. God personally directs our lives. He personally directs our lives. Again, I think David learned this as a shepherd. Can't prove it, but it seems to make sense. David is out there with a lot of time on his hands, watching the sheep, guarding against enemies, human or animal. And he has time to reflect on life and what life means and what's really important in life. And it dawned on him one day that his relationship with the sheep was on a different level, kind of like his relationship with God, except God was to him what David was to the sheep. And here's what he wrote, very familiar psalm to many. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I will not be in need. David didn't have a whole lot out in the wilderness, but he didn't lack anything either. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Sheep need that. Sheep will drown in rushing water, so the shepherd has to corral the water, make a little you know, area where the sheep can come up. and He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, for the sake of his name. 
God's honor is at stake in his protecting David and you and me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, dark crevices, dark canyons with steep edges that if he took one step the wrong way, it's goodbye, David. I fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The sheep drew comfort from David's presence. God gives David comfort through his presence. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Think of God here as the the Middle Eastern host who just falls all over you to make sure that everything is just right because you are his guest. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. David doesn't have a lot in the wilderness, but again, he says, it's like I've got all I need and more because I have God. And then in verse 6, he says, Certainly goodness and faithfulness will follow me all the days of my life. Or you could say, will pursue me, like God's pursuing me all the days of my life. And my dwelling will be in the house of the Lord forever. David understood that God personally directs his his life. We need to understand that. We need to understand that to follow him, to surrender to him, implies that he is directing us. And he will. Here's a third life principle that David learned somewhere along the way. I think he learned it in the wilderness of Judah. God is better than life itself. I have an image here of the wilderness of Judah. Okay. Who wants to buy real estate there? I love this day. This will be three weeks from Friday. And we'll get off the bus And I'll tell people, let's walk to the top of the hill. I shouldn't tell you this because maybe someday you'll go with me and I'm ruining the surprise. But um, we walk to the top of the hill. It's a couple hundred yards. And I like to get up there first because I like to see how people will respond because you're just walking up this hill and then you take one more step and you come over the edge and you see this. Wow. Whoa. And to see the reaction of people. This is David's world. Psalm 63 says David wrote this psalm when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, do you want to live there? I don't know. But there is a lot there, more than many of us would realize, to keep a shepherd happy. You see it? Scrubbage doesn't look that, the vegetation in the foreground doesn't look very good. But in the back, a little bit farther back, you have some green stuff. And that can't be there without what? Water. And the shepherds know because there's the vegetation, there is water. And the shepherds also know the tricks of the trade to figure out where the water is. The water's under there somewhere or the plants would die or they just wouldn't be there. So they know how to poke around around the plants. They know how the discolored terrain shows that maybe the water source is kind of seeping through right there or it could be encouraged to with a little poking and prodding and then the water comes out. The shepherds know how to survive in this. We might think that's pretty rough. No, the desert is rough. This is good stuff compared to the desert. This is the wilderness. And David learned some good life, good, um, good principles here in the wilderness. And one is that God is better than life itself. Let me read an excerpt of Psalm 63 to you. Psalm 63, as again, it says the heading, David was in the wilderness of Judah when he wrote it. God, 
You are my God. I shall be watching for you. My soul thirsts for you. Yeah, he's thirsty for God. He's thirsty out there sometimes. He has to find the water. But his soul thirsts for God. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and exhausted land where there's no water. Well, there's some, but not much. And you just saw a picture of it. So I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and glory. In other words, God, I have come to worship. Maybe some of David's worship was right there under the starry skies, this beautiful sanctuary that God painted in the evening sky of the wilderness of Judah. Because your favor is better than life. The Hebrew word there for favor is the same one that's used in translated faithfulness back in Psalm 23. The faithfulness of God, his covenant love, his special attention to David, everything that came to David because he was God's child. Your favor is better than life. My lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with fat and fatness. That is, with the good choice delicacies that the rich folks eat. David says, I don't need that. I have so much more. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. I've had the privilege of going to Israel, I think almost 30 times. I've lost count now, which is, that was my goal. Lose count of how many times you've been. And I love to take groups, love to go, and twice I've had the opportunity to walk down that wilderness. We step, we, we go down in the canyon, there's a monastery there, and we hike about half the way from Jerusalem to Jericho, biblical Jericho. And you're kind of going down, but you kind of go up, down. You're, you're kind of working your way down. And I remember in 1999, we're walking along, and it was, um, it was hot. It's like 95 degrees, probably. Got hotter as we were getting down to the Jordan Valley. And people are quick to say, that's a dry heat. It's a dry heat, though. It's okay. That doesn't mean run for a sweater because it's 95. And, oh, but it's dry. It's hot. And after about 30 minutes, it just dawned on me, you know what? In the... <laughs> In the last 30 minutes, I have just breathed a prayer of thanks to God for a cool breeze on my face, for a path that got a little bit more level and not quite as rocky, for a path that started to descend or was a little wider, for water in my water bottle that I was carrying that was warm but it was still life-sustaining water. And it dawned on me, you know, Lord, I never thank you for these things back home. My life is too consumed with the other stuff, but out here in the wilderness, I don't really have a lot. But I also have everything I need. I have virtually nothing, but I don't really lack anything either. And that was a good lesson that I could see in the wilderness. Oh, and there was one other thing, sidebar. So we're walking along, and it's kind of a hazy day, kind of not foggy like this morning, but just kind of hazy. And I looked across the canyon, and over here was a shepherd. There was a shepherd guy walking along with a herd of um, black goats. They're all just dark black. And they're walking really tightly together, and they're over there on kind of a brownish hill. And I thought, oh, there it is. In Song of Solomon, the man says to the woman, 
your hair is like a flock of goats descending the slopes of Gilead. And I thought, there it is, there it is, there it is. And, and the, the goats are walking tightly. They're kind of black, black goats, black hair, Middle Eastern black hair on the woman, you know, and they're walking on a, on a hill that kind of looks like Middle Eastern skin. And, uh, and that shepherd girl loved it. Oh, Yosef, do you really think so? Yes, my love. Yeah, I just, there it was. Okay, so okay, back from sidebar now. But that's life principle number three. God is better than life itself. I was privileged to be full-time at, at what's now CIU from 1985 to 2021, and every time the Lord had something new for me, it was there. And during my early years there, I came to this understanding that, that David apparently knew long before I did, that my relationship with God was life itself. Up to that point, I would have thought, well, okay, my relationship with God should be number one, and then my family's number two, and ministry three, and you know, four, five, six, whatever, but God's number one. And I started seeing verses like Deuteronomy 32, 47 that said, this word, well, not this whole word, but you know, the, the law of Moses, this word is not an idle word for you, it is your life. It is your life. And a couple chapters earlier, Moses says to the people of God, now follow God because he is your life. And then later in the New Testament, I found that John 17, 3, Jesus says, Father, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And I realized my outline's wrong. It's not God is number one and then two, three, four, five, six. It's God is number one and then one A, one B, one C, one D, one E. You see the difference? An English teacher will. An English teacher will be bothered because there's not a Roman numeral two. There's got to be a number two if there's a number one. Not in this outline. Okay? God, our relationship with God is one and then everything else is one A because I should be a Christian husband, a Christian father. That hat never comes off. Whatever the other relationships are, everything flows from my relationship with God. And David figures that out. And he says, and he affirms in Psalm 63, your favor is better than life. He's out with the sheep in the wilderness with very little. Yeah, but I'm good. I'm good. Life principle number four. I know when David learned this one, because the text tells us, God can overcome our failures. God can overcome our failures. This is really an important one. And when you read the book of 2 Samuel, it's just the, the trajectory of the book of 2 Samuel is just kind of like this. Here goes David, here goes David, here goes David. And you get to chapters 11 and 12, and then it's like... Up to 2 Samuel 11, so much had gone right. After that, so much is going to go wrong. We have this ugly incident about how David is attracted to a woman who is married to someone else, but he stops at nothing to get her, and all of a sudden he has a situation he can't deal with except with somehow conniving and scheming to arrange the death of her husband so that he can marry her. And he thinks he's gotten away with it, but the last verse of chapter 11 says, no, but the thing that David had done was not good. It was evil in the sight of God. So God sends him Nathan the prophet, and Nathan the prophet tells him a parable, and David's hit right between the eyes with this thing, and I think that perhaps 
David finally realizes the depth of the pain that he has caused so many people. And perhaps with tears on the page as he's writing, he writes this psalm, Psalm 51. Now he starts out pleading with God for forgiveness, but I want to draw our attention to the part about God overcoming our failures, and it starts in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach wrongdoers your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Do you see that major switch between verse 12 and verse 13? Up to then, it's all about create a clean heart in me, O God. Restore my heart. Renew a steadfast spirit. Please don't cast me aside. I deserve it, but don't do it. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. But David's not content to just be made right with God. He wants to be made right with God so that God can use him again. Are you kidding? After what David had done? No, David says, I'm sure that the God who forgave me can still use me if he's willing. I dealt with this for so many years with college students, prisoners of their past. You know why the past is so dangerous and so deadly and why hanging on to the past plays right into the enemy's hands? Because you can't change it. That failure three years ago, you can't change it. That failure to do something or not to do something seven years ago, you can't change it. And the enemy knows it. And the enemy loves to say, do you remember that? And you do. And you think that you think that God can still use you. Okay, maybe a little, but not a whole lot. And you can't go back and change it. But here's David, after all he'd done, saying, Lord, I need your restoration. I need your renewal, but I want more. I want more. I want you to use me again. And Lord, I know that you who created the stars, and I didn't, you who were with me all those days in the wilderness and gave me the grace for what I've needed to do and the courage and all that, that I just know that if you are willing, that you can still use me. And one of the most important things that we can do, as I said, share this with college students all the time, but it works for anybody, if you're hung up on a past failure, to basically admit, yep, that's what I did, or maybe that's even who I was, but it's not who I am. That's not who the scriptures tell me that I am. That's not who my Lord tells me who I am. So if he has forgiven me, I need to forgive myself, and I need to move ahead into what God has for me. And if he is willing to do that, then maybe David says, I will teach wrongdoers your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. There are going to be people David can reach now. Now, the story of David and Bathsheba is not told us so that we can say, oh good, I'll just sin and forget, yeah, get forgiveness later. Mm -mm. The consequences haunted David the rest of his life. But David also knew that he could experience God's forgiveness. He'd already been down that road and maybe you have too. There is forgiveness and God can use you 
still. This is the amazing God David served and the God we serve. Finally, life principle number five. Pastor Don talked about it the first week. David, an ordinary guy, but God looked at his heart. Here it is, going off the board now, leaving the book of Psalms to go to 2 Samuel for just a moment. With David, one of the themes, if you do take the time in the next few weeks to read from 1 Samuel 16 through 1 Kings 2 and then jump over to 1 Chronicles and read all the stuff that David did, what you'll see is when David failed, I mean, he, he failed pretty big. But with David, you always get the idea that he wanted to make it right. He wanted to make it right. With Saul, the former king, you got excuses. Okay, I've sinned. Okay, yeah, okay, I've sinned. I mean, the people kind of made me do it, but okay, I've sinned. But, but please honor me among the people, honor me in front of the people. But David, you get the idea that he wants to make it right. Here's a great look into David's heart. 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 and 2. It came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, the court prophet there, See now, I live in a house of cedar, but the ark of God remains in the tent. You see the heart? David realizes God has protected him from Saul. God has given him the kingdom. God has given him this beautiful palace. God has given him a family. God has given him riches. God has given him fame in that part of the world. He controls the land bridge between these different continents. And he is a powerful man. And he's got all this. And he says, the ark of God, which is... Pastor Don talked about bringing it up last week, this box. You've seen the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So there it is, symbolizing the presence of God in Israel. It's over here in a tent. And David says, that's not right, and I'm going to fix it. Well, Nathan figures, well, I don't need to pray about that. The king wants to build the God a temple. Yeah, yeah, go for it. God cuts off Nathan and says, no, 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 not my timing. But God appreciates the heart. You know how we know? Because he goes on to say, David, it's not the right time, but I like the attitude. And so I'm going to reward that attitude, and I'm going to build you a house. Not a house of cedar, I've already done that, but a house of people. And it's going to start with your son Solomon, and ultimately it's going to be fulfilled in your descendant, whom you'll never meet, David, in this life. But ultimately that promise in 2 Samuel 7 points us way ahead to Jesus. Wow. And after God describes to David how he's going to be with his line for generations and his favor will not depart from David's house, verse 18 tells us that David the king went in and sat before the Lord. He sat before the Lord and he says, Who am I, Lord God, and who are the members of my household that you brought me this far? Who am I? I'm just an ordinary person, but I'm in the hands of an extraordinary God. Even after this great blessing, David doesn't get puffed up. He just says, wow. <laughs> I'm, yeah, Lord, I mean, please, please do, but wow. Like, wow. Wow. So what about us? I don't really care if 3,000 years ago somebody's talking about me, but I do want my life to be marked by this extraordinary God who guides and directs my life. I think you do too. So let's just think back. If David were here, he'd probably say, well, okay, 
Understand that God is God and you're not. If you forget that, go read Psalm 8. You'll get it. That God personally directs your life. He directed mine as a shepherd boy. He'll direct yours. Details. Sidebar on that too. Keep a journal. Keep a journal. I keep mine now on my phone, but I used to hand write them. And when you write out prayer requests or you write out your thoughts and then three weeks later you see God respond, there it is, written record of God working in your life personally. Not just to these people on the pages of scripture, but to you personally. And someday, which is really fun, you can share it with your children or maybe your grandchildren. And they can see how God worked in granddad and grandma's life or in mom and dad's life. And it's a testimony to you personally and an encouragement. God is better than life itself to understand that he is the one all-consuming passion that we have and everything else flows from that. And if you've been down some roads that you just wish you hadn't been, to recognize that God can not only forgive you, but he can overcome that past and use you fruitfully and mightily in the present. But it all starts with the heart. Remember the main point at the very beginning, we come back to it full circle. The Bible is filled with the names of ordinary people whom God used in an extraordinary way when they surrendered their lives to his purpose. David was one of them. You want to be another one of them? Let's pray together.